Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Herbert Kane podcast. Now for those of you that are new here, my name is Simon Osimo and you can join me for weekly conversations with some really interesting people as I explore their personal stories, transformations and experiences that help educate, inform and inspire. Now on today's episode, I'm joined by Melissa Agnes, who is the founder of the Crisis Ready Institute and author of the book Crisis Ready that provides you with a roadmap to implementing a crisis-ready culture. Now, I think we'll all agree that 2020 has been an interesting year and many organisations have found that they were simply not crisis-ready when it came to protests, COVID-19 and tensions around the presidential election. Now, if you or your organisation is wondering if we're crisis-ready, then this podcast is for you. This is going to be a two-part conversation with episode two airing next week. But in this episode, Melissa shares what it means to be crisis ready and part of her personal journey that helped her find her calling. But before we dive into this week's content, I want to remind you that you can listen to the podcast wherever you consume your content and the video can be found on our YouTube channel at Simon Osimo. Now, if you get something from this conversation or believe that others will, it'd mean the world to me if you would like and share with your circle of influence. Okay, so let's dive into this week's conversation with Melissa Agnes, the founder of the Crisis Ready Institute. Welcome to the Who I Became podcast. Well, welcome to another episode of the Herbert Kane podcast, and I'm really excited today to be joined by Melissa Agnes. Now, Melissa, you are the founder and CEO of the Crisis Ready Institute. You are a TEDx talker, and by stalking you on social media, it looks like you've delivered the same conversation twice. So some people haven't delivered one TEDx talk, you've done it twice, and you're also the author of the book Crisis Ready. So welcome to the Herbert Kane podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Now, Melissa, did I get that right? When I was looking on YouTube, it looks like you have done the same TEDx talk twice. No, i just done it once. Oh, good, because when I looked, you're in two different outfits, so maybe it's editing. I don't know. We have to, we have to leave. No, that's funny. I mean, I have a lot of videos, but just one of them is a TEDx talk, and I'm in the same outfit the whole time. Oh, okay. That's so funny. Maybe I just discovered at 42 years old I'm colorblind or something, but it looked like there was, like was two different outfits. But, but you it's know, welcome to me on stage. So it does, yeah. Well, and welcome to, to the show. And like I said, it's um, you know, I'm really excited to talk to you today because it's a very topical um, subject about crisis management. You know, in 2020, where we are, uh, there's been a lot of sort of race relations here in Minneapolis, in Minnesota, where I am, uh, and across the world. And then also we've got COVID-19 have had to deal, deal with. So there's been a lot around sort of how organizations sort of recover uh, around their crisis. So I'm looking forward to getting some of your insight there. But you know, also about who I became as we, we focus more about, you know, who the person is. Um, so I want to sort of dive into a bit more about, you know, why you do the things that you do. But it'd be good just to give our listeners a sort of an oversight as to who you are, Melissa, and, and what you do now with the, the Crisis Ready Institute. Sure. So crisis readiness is my thing. Crisis readiness. Crisis ready is a term that I coined. Oh, man seven or eight years ago. Um, And it started because crisis preparedness is the language that's used in my industry. It's the common vernacular. And I disagree with status quo of crisis management and crisis preparedness. So chose a different kind of verbiage to be similar so that people recognize it, but also differentiate it and give it its own definition. 
So as a consultant, what I do is I help organizations become crisis ready, which is cultural. It's not about having a plan that sits stagnantly on a shelf that does absolutely nothing to serve you when you need it, uh, but instead ingraining a crisis ready culture into the organization whereby every single one of your team members understands three things implicitly. They understand what risk looks like so they can identify it in real time, which gives you a massive advantage in today's world. They understand how to assess it. So essentially, is it an issue or is it a crisis and what does that mean? And then from there, they understand how to effectively respond collaboratively in a way that, yes, it de-escalates the situation. Yes, it mitigates further material impact. But crisis readiness goes a step above that. And we always seek to manage any negative incident in a way where you're going to come out of it with increased trust and credibility in your brand. So with by those who matter most to the brand. So essentially, so in effect, you are taking a negative situation and you are turning, transforming it into a brand building, brand equity building um, opportunity. And with the Crisis Ready Institute, we're kind of taking that to the next level. So I talked about not being very satisfied with status quo in my industry. Um, the Institute is, its mission is to change that, is to elevate status quo. And everything about Crisis Ready is a learnable skill. Meanwhile, it's not a skill that's learned or that's taught in anywhere, not in MBA programs, not in college, not, it doesn't matter where you are. Um, and yet it, it's a learnable skill and it's a required skill today if you're going to succeed in business and in life, especially in this world. Um, so the Crisis Ready Institute is that's part of the mission is to is to empower and to provide that skill set to professionals and to help them at the same time while learning that skill set actually come out of it on the back end with a crisis ready program that they're now ingraining into the culture of the organization. So it's hitting two birds with one stone. I, I don't like that saying, but just came out of my mouth. So well, you go. you've used it, even though you don't like it. I guess. <laughs> yeah. and, and so tell me a bit about, and so your book then, um, Crisis Ready, um, I haven't had a chance to, to read your book, but I'm excited to, to order it and, um, and dive into there. But I know that when we spoke offline, you said to me about, uh, you realized that you looked at crisis management differently to, to others within the industry. And it was sort of around the time when you're writing the book. So you know, how, how did that come about? What, what, in what way do you look at crisis management differently to perhaps other industry leaders? Oh, man, so differently in so many ways. I realized, so, I mean, we all live life through our learned experiences, through our lived experiences and with our own lens, right? So while we can be empathetic and try to put ourselves in other shoes, we see life through our lens. I didn't realize that my lens was different and a differentiator until my book came out. And all of a sudden I was being contacted and communicated with by professionals across industries around the world that were saying, we invested in our crisis preparedness and it was nothing about what you're talking about. And as a result, this is where it frustrated me. As a result, we're bleeding money or we're bleeding reputation or we're jaded and we don't believe in professionals of your, you know, in your industry anymore because they were wronged, essentially. Um, no, not essentially. They were wronged um, from my point of view. And so that's when I realized that I was doing something different. And there's a lot of layers of how I do things differently. But crisis readiness, ultimately successful business is built on relationships. When it comes down to it, you know, people ask me all the time, how is it that you work in so many different industries around the world? And the answer is that every business, the common denominator is human beings. Business, whether it's government or corporate, business exists to serve human beings. Those relationships are what matter most from my perspective to 
your business. Successful relationship with every stakeholder group leads to successful business, leads to great reputation, all of the all of the good things that we need in business. Crisis management, you know, when it comes down to it, is doing right by the people you serve. It's doing right by those relationships. One of the crisis ready rules is. Uh, people above process and bottom line always. I think that's my favorite crisis ready rule. Um, and it's not that other people don't see it that way. I think that I have an ability to, I have a talent in taking very complex subject matter and breaking it down and just communicating it very simply so that we could get the one, two, three, four steps of the foundation of what matters in that context and actually provide it in an implementable way, a tangibly implementable way. Um, so I think it's a whole bunch of things that just make me me that has led to Melissa Agnes as the brand and Crisis Ready as the brand. So Melissa, I know you provided the, the TED Talk in, in LA. So it was titled Secret to Crisis Management. How was it taking very complex processes and sort of breaking them down to a sort of a, a wider audience, perhaps it might have laymans that don't understand crisis management? Yeah, I think there's two parts to that question. One is... Like I mentioned earlier, I think that I have a skill in doing that just in general. And it's a big part of how I built my brand. Um, and then two, you bring in, it's not even just how do you take a complex subject matter and break it down for the masses? Because like I said, I do that every day. But how do you take a complex message that is so dynamic and so important and deliver that in 18 minutes when in an 18 minutes, every second counts. So literally structuring it, like I remember wanting to share a specific story and calculating the time on that story and knowing I need to, I kept needing to shave, you know, another 30 seconds off, another 15 seconds off, another five seconds off, and then getting that down so that when you're on stage with adrenaline and with everything that you're still at your, your marker. Um, but I think it's, the biggest takeaway for me was how much of a collaborative effort it needed to be. So the first iteration of my speech, I recorded myself, I sent it to trusted friends and colleagues and peers, and I asked for their, you know, critical, honest feedback from there, keep refining it, keep getting your timing right. Um, and then for me, when I'm, when I'm about to go on stage, it's that morning I'll wake up and I'll visualize exactly what I want, what success looks like and how I want to feel when I walk off that stage. And that's my goal uh, because I've already put the work in. Yeah. And a good friend of mine um, has a sort of uh, now a sort of internationally known organization called the Violent Project. Um, Dr. James Densley, he did a TEDx talk here in Minnesota. I think it was last year or a couple of years ago. Uh, and he's a professional speaker, talks at international conferences. And he said, Simon, I don't know if I would ever do it again because of the amount of work that, that goes into it. It's amazing, isn't it? Trying to sort of condense oh, I would down. Your, definitely your do it again. I would definitely. Oh, you would, do it yeah. Again. And, yeah. And I don't, I don't want to talk for my friend in case I'm stopping him getting any opportunities. But you know, I think it's it's just that pain that you feel you feel afterwards, and and particularly yeah. such an important subject because a good friend of mine always says, which is very true, that you know, in times of crisis, he says that sort of the the um uh, the police are only minutes away, but you need things in seconds. You know, so yeah. you've got to make quick decisions. So it, it's really yeah. hard when you're giving people advice about crisis management. Um, yeah, which yeah, is seconds count. which is why it's so important to be crisis ready. Yes. Um, you know, we just the institute is just about to launch a curriculum that we're launching for college students, 
and it's crisis ready basically for the college student, for you as a, as a leader um, to strengthen your leadership skills, as well as how you're going to bring this into the workforce for yourself and how that's going to become an asset of who you are, a value add to, to your future employers. Um, and so thinking that premeditated that, you know, even just understanding issue versus crisis and what that, what that means and what that means for you individually and what that means for the brand, because a crisis for one organization doesn't necessarily translate into a crisis for another. So what is a crisis to your organization and why, what are those thresholds that if this gets passed, this is actually escalated to crisis. If you don't do that, crisis is emotional no matter what side or, you know, seat you have at that table or side you are on, on of the crisis and emotion clouds judgment. So unless you think these through these things through in advance, you don't have a winning chance and, and luck is not, not a strategy. Yeah. Um, it's not, especially not for leadership. So, so yeah, so being thoughtful and mindful about it beforehand. And just that gives you a lot of, of power and empowerment for when it, when, and if it strikes. Yeah. There's a very common term that the, I don't know who actually first said it, but the Marines commonly use it that the body can't go where the mind hasn't been, you know, so it is that, that preparedness. And I know we're going to move on to a bit of a difficult um, subject for you. And I know you don't know. I'm, I'm, like, I'm procrastinating. Like, like talk about yourself. You're, you're trying to navigate the conversation <laughs> yeah. around it, but I'm thinking, you know, I'm a former investigator. I'm like, I'm going to bring this back to the stuff. But I know that, right, uh, interestingly, one of the things that um, I liked about you was not only, you know, being a woman in the industry, I've got to be very honest, you know, a lot of these things are very sort of male dominated. Um, but also yeah. I saw you had an economics degree and I was like, an economics degree, expert in crisis management, how did we get there? And, you know, you told me an interesting story. You actually dropped out of school at 18 to, to help support your sister. So maybe tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, um, sure. So you're right. I was in college and I had no idea. I felt I called myself a floater. I just I had no idea what what I was doing or what my purpose was or where I wanted to go. Um, at the same time, that coincided with my sister was 15 at the time I was 18 and she was in a hard place. And um, I knew just kind of intuitively, intuitively that from my perspective, she was either going to end up, I would say, in a body bag or pregnant. And neither one of those were acceptable to me. So I did some things. I gave other people an opportunity to, to kind of see what, what, how they would respond and how they would manage her. Um, didn't meet what I felt that she needed. Um, so I stepped in and I, I took her, <laughs> I didn't kidnap her, but I just took responsibility for her. Um, yeah. And she lived with me for about a year and until life carried us on. Yeah. And interesting. I mean, you were 18 at that point. Um, I think your sister was, was 15, you know, making that life decision. I mean, we all have sacrifices we have to make in life. We all have dreams, but how was it for you being 18, deciding, you know, I'm not university or college, not to you want to call it in Canada, um, and then to drop out to go and look after, you know, someone who's 15? I mean, you know, with, with, with no, no job and no education. I mean, how, how hard was that? Um, the decision wasn't hard because it was what felt right. Um, so it, the work was hard. I mean, I dropped out and I got three jobs and I went to parent teacher interviews and, you know, dropped her off at school from a car that I literally, it was a stick shift. And when it rained, it rained on us. We went over a puddle, you know, our feet got wet. 
when the car when the heating was on, the carburetor leaked in fumes that probably were got us high. I don't know. Um, and every morning, and I'm in from Montreal, so you know minus thirty Celsius. So I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, like minus ten. Um, is sitting in the car at six a.m. when it's freezing cold and revving the engine for twenty minutes just to get the car to start so that I could drive her to school so I could go to work. That part I think was a little bit more stress than I anticipated for my 18th, you know, year on the planet. Yes. Um, but the choice to do it, it was there. I didn't skip a beat. It wasn't a question. It was, are other people going to step up and do what I believe to be right? No. Okay. Then I will. That wasn't, that didn't feel like a sacrifice that just, that's love from my perspective. And I, that's my sister. So if I can do it, I will. And I knew I could. And then I think where you're going with that too is, you know, how do you drop out of school and kind of give up on your dreams? I didn't feel that either. I didn't feel like, I think I've always trusted, I've had, always had a very strong sense of self and I've always had a very strong sense that I'll take my life wherever I want it to go, whatever that looks like. I may not know what that picture looks like, but the second I have, you know, one color, the color will be on the canvas and it'll be where I want it to be. So I didn't know at the time what I wanted to do in my life. Um, so it wasn't like I was stopping a dream. It was just that I was taking, I was kind of just taking a little different course, um, route. And I knew intuitively that at the end of it, I was going to be happy because that's how I define success. So I don't know. It, I don't know if that answers your question, but. So Melissa, one of the things that must have changed between you and your sister is, is the start of the relationship, you know, and I've got two sons, six and nine, and they love to, you know, you get them as individuals, they are true individuals, but when they're together, they love to gang, gang up against mum mom and dad, you know, and, and that's a true sort of sibling um, sort of, you know, relationship, but, you know, you must have become parent and sister um, to, your, to your sister. So how did you find that process? natural. Um, I'm protective when I love, I love kind of fiercely and with a lot of protection. So, and not just that, but my sister and I are three years apart, but, um, with regards to kind of maturity level, I was always much more mature than my age and she was always much less mature than her age. So the gap was always much greater than three years. Um, so that kind of didn't change. We had our struggles I, what I'll say is that what that led to was a relationship and a bond that even though we don't see each other today, um, that bond is indescribable. I, it, it, it's really hard for me to describe, especially because she's not in my life right now, but um, this, there's just something. Steffi and I have, I don't know, some kind of bond that I can't really put to words that is profoundly, profoundly strong and could never be broken, no matter what kind of life threw at us or does throw at us. Yeah, I guess, you know, when you grow, grow up and you sort of, um, you know, you look back, well, where does your strong sense of sort of responsibility and sort of care come from? Because, I mean, but she is your sister, yes, and I understand that. But for being so young, even at 18, uh, there's a lot of people that would say, I'm off at college, you know, you go figure this out yourself. You know, there is most probably when you look at the spectrum, there's mostly more 18 year olds that would be selfish at that age than be unselfish and, and help a sibling. So where would you put your strong sense of responsibility that you might have had? Maybe just not against your sister, but clearly no. in your life at that time. Yeah, it's kind of a pattern that I've seen in myself. Um, 
and I see it with the Institute. It's kind of, there's a parallel there. So one, I want to say that for those 18 year olds or those former 18 year olds who didn't take that route, I don't think that that's selfish. I think that we're all on our journey and that it shouldn't be judged. Um, I chose mine, Steffi chose, chooses hers. So I've noticed a pattern with retrospect with myself where if something, if something goes against my core values or one of my core values and it like, it really just emotionally impacts me, um, with a lot of fierce and a lot of drive to it's doing wrong to others or it's doing wrong by others. Um, I think that's the kind of underlining undertone there, the through line. Um, I tend to, and this is with, you know, an analysis and retrospect, but I tend to look to see who else is stepping up and who else is kind of what's happening, what's, what's changing, who's taking responsibility for that, or who's being a part of the change that might need to happen. Um, and then if nobody's doing it and it really is one of, it's only happened a few times in my life, but it, the Institute is a very clear parallel to this. Um, and nobody else is doing it, then I tend to stand up and do it. Um, and I think that nothing made me that way. I think it might just be the way that I'm wired, kind of just an attribute or an aspect of, of the person that I am. Yeah, and I know taking care of your sister at so young, you must have given you a, a different perspective on your life. And I know when we spoke offline, as you said, you know, your sister Steffi isn't in your life uh, right now. And I think one of the hardest things that you said was, you know, choosing that you couldn't watch anymore and having to sort of have someone who is sort of so close to you, not in, not in your life. I mean, how does, um, how does a person process that? Or how did you process um, that oh. sometimes part of life is also saying goodbye to those nearest and dearest to us? Yeah, because there's so much pain in that. Um, it's so hard. So with Steffi, when I was about 25, I, I had spent seven years up until that point fighting. And I would literally say I refuse to have a sister like this, which who am I to say that, right? Who is anybody to say something like that? But that's at that age and through that lens, that's, that's what I would say. And I would fight and resist against her, her nature um, and her journey all the time. I mean, I remember being on a date and getting a call from her and just throwing cash on the table and leaving the food and like just zipping down the highway to go save her from that was my life for basically seven years um, in, in a big and so at one point um, so though all of that to say is that I, I was so resistant her life choices and that's not fair right that's not fair so one of the lessons the hardest lessons that I had to learn was that you no matter how much you love somebody you can't help somebody unless they want you to be helped right? They're going to do the work on their end. And that led to at one point, um, when she had a baby, I couldn't watch anymore. And I eventually, and this is another characteristic about me, I'll, I'll fight for people that I love, but at some point I will choose me. And so, um, I love her, but I love her from a distance. Um, I miss her terribly. Your experiences um, set you up for where you are now and perhaps maybe sort of dealing with crisis management it was most probably part of your your calling i it's definitely my calling um i think that everything about my childhood has set me up for and steffi is just one aspect of that so has set me up for so for where i am and who i am and what i do um but in addition to that i also think that i'm wired a weird way <laughs> a weird way i remember well i don't remember my aunt told me recently that when i was five i asked her what hurts in life. So from my perspective, 
that just shows me that I was already crisis readying myself for life at five. So there's something weird about the way that this is wired that, and then in addition to the other kind of aspects of my personality, I suppose, um, bringing that all together, everything about crisis ready is precisely the way that I have always led my life. All I do, all I do, you know, the kind of what I do is I take that and I apply it to business and I apply it to risk and I apply it to, it's, it's all just completely in alignment with who I am and the way that I see the world. And I just turned it into a model and a practice that takes that and scales that and serves organizations. Because again, it's always about human beings. Melissa Agnes from the Crisis Ready Institute. Uh, thank you for, for joining me and um, we will catch up the conversation in part two. Sounds good. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast. If you are enjoying the discussions between Simon and his guests, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review, as well as share with your friends on social media. Once again, thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast.